Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with another podcast encounter from the ninth annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna last November. With me is Martin Reeves, who's head of the Boston Consulting Group's Bruce Henderson Institute. And that's a fundamental first question. What is the the Bruce Henderson Institute? BCG, which is a, a generalist consulting firm's think tank for new ideas in business, Um, So I think all business people will be familiar with the idea that the rate of change has increased in business, but I think the rate of change of the ideas and the frameworks that we need is also increasing. Therefore, uh, we exist to to serve that purpose. And you look at ideas before they become mainstream part of the strategy which Boston Consulting Group would recommend to people. That's right. We're a little bit outside the business, so we source our ideas from two places. One of them is anomalies and precedents in business. So we see interesting things going on in China, in this company or that company. We extract those practices. And then we also look beyond business at uh, mathematics, military science, uh, computer science, and so on, biology, for ideas and frameworks that may be useful to business in the, in the near future. Fascinating beat. Bruce Henderson, who was he? Bruce Henderson was the founder of the Boston Consulting Group. And the reason that the Institute is named after him is that he was a pioneer in business strategy, which is actually a very young discipline. Therefore, the idea of the Institute is that we not only, as a company, commercialize strategy, but actually we continue to evolve the art. And part of the search you are doing for new ideas is evolving the art. Some examples from the sort of things you spot by, what, scanning the horizon? For example, we're drawing a lot of inspiration from biology right now. And the reason is that management science is generally based on what I call an engineering analogy or a physics analogy. In other words, we know most of what we can know and we control most of what we want to control. We can plan. In the current circumstances of business, that's not the case. So actually, biology that deals with complex, uncertain, shapeable, but not completely controllable systems actually offers a big source of inspiration. Yes, I suppose the 20th century corporation, the manufacturing corporation, got its engineering better and better, and it's now confronted with a world where interesting things are happening on the edge, which is one of the lessons of biology, isn't it? Indeed. Words such as adaptation, ecosystems, shaping, uh, mutuality, sustainability, vitality, these sorts of words begin to enter the management lexicon and we're trying to give them a precise meaning and attach a methodology to them. You can observe all this stuff, but to actually turn it into things you can strategize about is quite hard, isn't it? Especially for people who've been trained in a, a conventional manner. Indeed. So one of the things we have to think about is not only the development of the ideas and the application of the ideas, but also the education around the ideas. One of the things we did for the first time recently, for example, was to create a video game that enabled people to get a hands-on feel for what some of these new approaches to strategy actually feel like in practice because theory alone was not sufficient to inform. And this is more than just a company wanting to be informed about this when they call you in. They want to use it to change themselves, do they? Really at the heart of them. Because again, you're talking and consulting to established people, aren't you? Uh, Well, actually, our target audience is forward-looking leaders. So many corporations want the tried and tested methods that have, uh, have, you know, 100 or 1,000 data points associated with them. We're concentrating on that 5 or 10% of enterprises that want to or need to explore new approaches. That's our target audience. So you wake them up to these ideas, and they can then apply them to what they do or go off in new directions, can they? They can. I mean, I give you a specific example. One of our projects, and and I do try to make sure that we're not just researching. We actually have one foot in the client and one foot in research. 
I call it laboratory of the client. One of our projects was for a an Asian electronics company that was doing rather well, but they realized that that business has a very uh, high turnover rate. And so their question was, not how do we do well now, but how do we do well in 100 years' time? They wanted us to create a 100-year-proof governance system for the company. Um, so that took us into some you know, very biological thinking about how systems self-regulate and so on. But you were also trying to do something, you were trying to tell them to be quite different from how they are at the moment, weren't you? Very much so, and using quite biological principles. So, you know, embeddedness in larger ecosystems, ecosystems of, of society and international affairs to have challenges and variation and new ideas, if you like, the genetic potential for the future as well as optimizing today um, to have multiplicity, to have modularity in these sorts of biological concepts. It's right for a corporation to think that far ahead, is it? That some people would say it's better for companies to have a natural life where their original purpose is uh, developed and then naturally sort of uh, wears out at the end of its natural life. And that's, that's how corporate life should be. It's healthy. I think we could argue both sides of that. Uh, so we're, we're here in Austria and, and, and you know, the idea of Schumpeterian creative destruction is important. Things uh, live and they die and in, in dying they, they create space for other new things. That's true. But if companies through their non-inevitable rigidity are dying sooner than they need to, then that would seem to be a source of inefficiency that we can address. And in, indeed, traditionally in strategy, the central question has always been, how good is my game? But really now, Philippe, there's a new question they need to think about, which is how long will the game last? And we, we don't really have the technology and the, and the science to, to think about that question currently. We're still living through the digital revolution, aren't we? And that changes an awful lot of assumptions that were made for about a hundred years of the modern corporation. Indeed, digital changes everything. And I'm not talking about digital products. I'm talking about what digital does to the fabric of a corporation. So one thing it does is it turns physical things into electrons, which means that things can evolve faster. And, and human hierarchical organizations don't evolve that fast. Another thing it does is it makes things um, interconnectable, which means that the corporation can be modular. Therefore, the idea of the corporation as a monolith is an assumption that gets suspended. Another thing that it does is it makes corporate boundaries porous. So we may think about the corporation as a discrete entity, but increasingly we think about ecosystems. Another thing it does, just to mention one more, is corporations might think about innovation in terms of product innovation traditionally, but actually we can rewire any aspect of the corporation, how we monetize, how we source shared services. And so actually we need to think about innovation at a high level, business model innovation. When I went to see Peter Drucker many years ago, he said something in the course of the morning I spent with him that I let go. He said this was about uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. He said he did not think the computer had yet begun to really impact on American business. And I let it go because I thought this was one of the things he was saying that was, uh, you know, the old man had lost it. Mm -hmm. Going away and thinking about it, I realized that the, the same old corporate structures were applying computers to what they did. It was not revolutionizing those corporate structures, and that's precisely what he meant. And we've seen the impact of the computer in a real way over the past 10 years or so, but it was very delayed because people computerized existing departments, didn't they? That's right. If we give um, Peter Drucker the, the benefit of the doubt with that comment, uh, indeed what he might have meant is that while technology creates the tremendous potential for changing the fabric of a corporation, in fact, corporations until perhaps recent years, if you like, superficially digitized. They computerized existing structures and processes. And indeed, we, we hear the word digital transformation a lot today. And 
the superficial nuance of that is is catching up and doing the things today digitally with greater efficiency. The deeper meaning is fundamentally rethinking what we do and why. That demands the kind of thinking you're trying to do, does it? We hope that it does. We aspire to be uh, supplying that sort of thinking, yes. Because an established corporation of any size has a lot of embedded capital in products and uh, machinery and uh, warehousing and uh, production departments and production lines and things like that, that it cannot readily tear up and uh, go after the new, can it? Well, we can actually measure the propensity of a corporation to run and reinvent itself. We call that vitality. We figured out a way of measuring that. And it leads to a very different story from the story of performance. There can be some very high-performing corporations that do not have this vitality, the ability to reinvent themselves. And indeed, 90% of large corporations do have a very high inertia. But the good news is that uh, it's not inevitable. 10% are able to be agile and adapt. So we think that in addition to the focus on performance, we need to really give equal measure to the concept of vitality, which is forward-looking, and then also, and critically, ambidexterity, which is the ability to do these apparently contradictory things at the same time, which is also very hard. Because you need the revenue flow from your established businesses while you look for new stuff to do. Exactly. You have to overperform with the current way of doing things in order to pay for the future. And with very high uncertainty and a fast rate of change, you need to take multiple bets. You'll be failing some of the time, so that really does need to be funded. How do you measure vitality, though? Is it uh, R&D? We just actually published with Fortune something called the, the Fortune Future 50, which is a ranking of the most vital corporations in the U.S. And the methodology we adopted was we looked at some forward-looking financial measures. There's a measure called the present value of growth options that measures the market's expectation of future performance, not current performance. But then we supplemented this by looking at predictors of future performance. So, for example, in the realm of strategy, we use natural language processing, a form of artificial intelligence, to look at how corporations spoke about themselves. And we found that we could distinguish corporations that were externally oriented and change-oriented and future-oriented from those that were very much focused on current optimization. So if you like, we were measuring the mindset of the corporation. It turns out to be a predictive signal. You can actually do that from the way they talk about themselves? We can, actually. So it's called natural language processing. You basically take everything a corporation says about itself, you X-ray that that unstructured text data with a natural language processing algorithm, and you can distinguish between corporations which are essentially trying to maximize short-term returns from those which are trying to create growth and vitality and serve a clear social purpose. And that turns out to be actually a a predictive signal of future performance. But quite a lot of this is seen through the eyes of the investors who are very short term, are they not? Most of them, to generalize wildly. That is said to be the case. It may be somewhat the case. Clearly, Wall Street is impatient and returns-oriented. But some corporations are able to be sustainable and long-term-oriented, and, and they have investors too. Some of them are family companies, but, 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 but many are not. So I think it's a little too convenient as an excuse. And you talk about both elements, the yeah. satisfying on the quarterly or half-yearly yeah. basis with returns, at the same time looking ahead, and you call it ambidextrousness. Could be schizophrenia, couldn't it? It does have some aspects which require, if you like, conceptual contradiction because corporations which are trying to manage according to a plan to maximize efficiency, to minimize errors, and at the same time be creative, explore options, be comfortable failing, those are very contradictory mindsets, but we do need to adapt on all time scales. Now, one of the interesting things is that when corporations first encounter these ideas, they think that it's about focusing more on the short term, on being faster and more agile, and it is. But we also need to think about the long term, too. We need to think about the ideas that will fuel growth in the future. 
Is that better done by splitting a company in two rather than trying to do innovation within the existing sort of structure? That's a very good question. I think, so I wrote a paper called Staying Big by Acting Small, and indeed the sheer scale of corporations can be an obstacle to change. And both for that reason, and also because if you want to deploy different approaches, an entrepreneurial approach in one part and a classical optimization approach in another, you may need to separate. And you may need to separate not just different product lines or different geographies, but different ways of thinking and doing. And if you carry out that experiment to the extreme, you end up actually with, a, with an ecosystem whereby you don't necessarily even own all of the pieces of a corporation. And that's tricky for managers because they may be used to owning things and controlling things a different sort of mentality. Intellectuals are supposed to be people who can balance contradictory ideas in their mind at the same time. Difficult for a a manager, a leader to do, isn't it? It is. In fact, we we call it ambidexterity partly because it's a a nice visual analogy, but partly because statistically it's very similar. So 3% of the human population are ambidextrous, and it turns out that about 3% of companies can run the business and reinvent the business with advantage at the same time. And it turns out to be a very valuable skill. It's worth between 6 and 8 percentage points of total shareholder return over a 10-year period. So it's, it's, it's necessary, it's rare, and it's actually uh, quite hard. Necessary but difficult. Indeed. You were talking at the session here at the Forum on Growth. What did you particularly say there? Um, so the question that the whole conference is, is based around this time is, or at least our session was, was based on, is growth an imperative? And, and what I had to say was yes for corporations, because in the long run, the majority of shareholder returns come from growth. And yes for society, because it, it's growth that, that makes us all better off, including the poorest. But there are two wrinkles. One of them is that growth rates are trending downwards. Therefore, we can't merely participate passively in growth. We actually have to, have to create growth through innovation, through this future orientation we've been talking about. The other wrinkle is that Um, unequal distribution of the gains of growth have created social and political rifts, which are actually undermining not only support for globalization, but I would also say potentially for technology. Technology is increasingly seen as a source of a fear of unemployment in the future. And for the kind of capitalism we've had for the last more than 100 years. Indeed. So what I laid out was a series of imperatives of things that corporations could do to rejigger their model uh, more towards sustainable, inclusive growth. Okay. One or two of them, please. One of them was to be purpose-driven. What that means is to not only think about value extraction, but to think about the greater social purpose served. And that stops you from getting into an optimization trap whereby you're doing something which is a more and more efficient thing that's actually not useful or less useful. So to have a clear purpose for the corporation. That's a very Peter Drucker idea, of course. It it is indeed. It's a very old idea, but it's it's, it's particularly acute need in our times, I think. Another one was to diversify metrics. So if you look at the top 10 managerial metrics of most companies, they usually consist of either financial outcomes or productivity ratios. In other words, they are backward-looking and they are essentially selfish. They're about how much value is extracted. So we need to be more forward-looking with the vitality measure that I talked about, and also we need to measure our our social impact. That was another idea I talked about. But that uh, financial rewards to the managers, fairly recent idea, past 20 or 30 years, has become pretty embedded in the way uh, money is dished out to the right people who run companies. Indeed. And uh, I also talked about how ancient this idea is. And I sort of, in in a sense, tried to fuse the ancient and the modern. So Aristotle had these two concepts of economics. One is crematistica, which is money making for its own sake. And he also had oikonomia, which is the affairs of the family. In other words, wealth creation constrained by a social objective, a social purpose. Now, the interesting thing is that we can use natural language process. We can use artificial intelligence to detect whether corporations are crematistica oriented or oikonomia 
economia oriented. And ironically, the ones that have an overarching purpose are the ones that do better. So it's as if the worst way to make money and to be sustainable is actually to aim, is to maximize short-term returns. And to be clear about your social purpose and long-term objectives turns out actually to be a better way, not only of sticking around and being relevant, but also actually to have acceptable long-term returns. And you can back that up with facts and figures, analysis, because one thinks about how to change the way companies work, and one thinks only of a change in the context in which they operate, in people's minds, in fact. But there are actually ways of putting monetary value on this as well. Indeed. So the ideas that we've just talked about are sort of ancient, they're commonplace. I think to put ideas to work, we need to do a couple of other things. We need to create compelling narratives. Um, so we, the storytelling component of what we do is very important. We also need to back it up with analysis. We need to show that actually it's in the long-term benefit of shareholders and corporations to think about these ideas. We can do that. We need to use the, the latest analytical techniques to do so, because if these things were obvious, we'd have figured them out some time ago. But perhaps there are new things we can learn with things like, um, with things like artificial intelligence. So that's how we think about this. And these sort of ideas are acceptable to hard-nosed business leaders, are they, who call in Boston Consulting Group to get things done? Well, not entirely, actually, but our job is to be in the vanguard. So we, we try to take sufficient risk with ideas that we're wrong some of the time. The, 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 the research projects don't always pan out. We're focused on the 10% of business leaders that are very much concerned to try new ideas that are very much future-looking. And if you like, in a marketing sense, they are the early adopters. So the, the hope, if you like, is that, like Peter Drucco, by being a little bit ahead of the parade but not too far, we will eventually be in the parade. You talk about the growth imperative still, but in several parts of the the developed world, growth is lagging because population is aging. Growth may not be the measurement, the success measurement anymore in, in many countries in the future. Sometimes, actually, one of the strange places we take our inspirations from is science fiction, because if we try to imagine the future and we extrapolate the present, we often end up with something fairly incremental. So there's this wonderful novel by Doctorov called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, which is the concept of a leisure society, where basically economic uh, shortage has been eliminated and so the main problem of humanity is actually uh, un lack of occupation. And the solution to that in his particular case was the leisure society where self-improvement and entertainment were actually the basis for the economy. Now, as sure. valuable to self-esteem as was once work. Indeed, they are the top of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, if, if you like. So that's one alternative future that we're thinking about too. In our work, in our work on the future of work, we're actually using science fiction and film and art to create visions of futures. And then we're looking at where those futures are actually evident in the present in pockets and, and how economics and, and economic activity and work would, would fit into those different visions. A lot of people see work falling off a cliff as artificial intelligence kicks into driving and then um, jobs that have been the preserve of the educated classes until now. A crisis in employment coming. You are uh, less uh, alarmist about that? Uh, well, I believe in, in human creativities. I do think that it is true that the pace of technological change is as high as it is uh, re reputed to be, as, as we fear it to be. I do think that this will create task obsolescence, if not job obsolescence. I do believe that this will require corporations to change and require individuals to change. And I think that they, they will change. I think the history of technology shows that we always do change. I think the trick is 
can we change ahead of the curve? Can we change promptly so that we don't have some very big uh, frictional or or transitional cost? You have a very interesting job, don't you? And they actually pay me for it, which is amazing. Do you get paid for boosting the intelligence of the firm in a vague way, or do you work on specific fee-paying things for clients? We're a cost center, so we we don't own a P&L. We don't justify ourselves with consulting projects. Uh, But we do do consulting projects for for two reasons. One, uh, we're interested in the complete idea development chain. We're interested in taking ideas through to practical application. The second one is to keep us honest, because if I fall in love with an idea, it may be a self-indulgence or it may actually be useful. I won't actually know unless I have one foot in in, in the client. Martin Reeves of Boston Consulting Group, thank you very much. This is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. Another podcast coming up soon.